0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Kate Mangino,
1: PhD. She is a gender expert and professional facilitator who has been working internationally for nearly 20 years. She is the author of the new book, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equity at Home, an informed guide about how readers can rewrite harmful gender norms and create greater household equity. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. So gender inequity. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. (laughs) We're familiar. We're familiar. We're big fans of gender. Well, not fans of it. We're fans of the concept and talking about it. Sure. And I'm very happy to be on your show
2: because you talk a lot about kids and tweens and raising kids and... A lot of the interest around my book has been around couples, and I think that's a great place to start. But I also have lots of ideas about what we can do to raise boys so that they grow up to be
0: capable of being equal partners if they choose to be in a relationship. Where do we start to kind of come at it? Do you think there is hope to attack it within our own relationships and peers? Or is this something that we need to focus a next generation down to really see change? Because I I think with our generation, you hear a lot of, as you say in the book, I do so much more than my father. Did I this? I this? Oh, well, we're more equitable than it was for me. Is this just something that has to get better over generations? Or can we do something about it in the here and now?
2: I would say both. I think that there's great potential for the future. I think we should be Intentionally working with boys and girls to raise them differently. And I'm happy to go into this a little bit more about how we do socialize boys and girls differently to behave differently in the household. A lot of these conversations about, I was just listening to you in your episode with Matthew Frey recently, and he was talking about the omelet pan. And, you know, there's gender roles there about how we raise girls and boys <laughs> to talk about omelet pans and who's going to wash it and who's going to leave it behind. So I think that there's a lot of work we can do with kids and teens and young people like, you know, your cousin who's just got engaged and is in their mid 20s. I think there's so much potential there. And let's not give up on ourselves. You might not reach parity, but you can have conversations. You can maybe move over the spectrum a little bit. I wrote my book for grandparents because I see so many grandparents having a really big role in grandkids' lives and babysitting on the weekends and their words matter and their expectations
1: matter. So I think wherever you are in your life, there's something you can do. At one point in the book, Kate, you call them back pocket facts. (laughs) I just wanted to start with that, to put a pin in it for the person who's like, what? Like, As Margaret was saying, it's so much better than it used to be. Like, what? Why are you still complaining about this? Why are you making a big deal about nothing? Can you give us a couple back pocket facts? Of course. And I put those
2: in there because... You know how we find it's one thing when you're at home and you're reading a book or an article and it's all resonating with you, but then you're at happy hour or you're out with your friends and someone challenges you and you're like, oh, what were those statistics? And so I kind (laughs) of pulled together a few, thinking like, if you can remember these, I even say like, take a picture of this, (laughs) of this in the book, so that if you like, let me, I'm going to run to the restroom and I'll be right back (laughs) and check my facts. Pull it up in your phone. So number one, academics agree that when you look at, and this has been going on since the mid '80s. This is a trend that's been going on for about 30 years, is that in time journals, in different sex households, women do two thirds of the work and men do one third. So if women are putting in 20 hours of work in the home a week, men are only putting in 10. And this adds up over the course of months and years to be incredibly substantial amounts of time. I think about what I could do with hundreds of extra hours of free time. You know, you can you can dig in at work, you can explore hobbies, you can go back for a degree, you can have friends, you can take a nap. And these are all choices that male partners are having that female partners don't have the ability or the capacity to make. So that's one thing. The one-third, two-third, generally accepted amongst academics. Another one that I think is really interesting is that at age 25, when you're looking at college educated, different sex couples, income is very close. You see about only a few percentage points of difference. Still a difference, still something to work on, but very close. It's only about a 10% difference. By the age of 45, and what happens between 25 and 45, you have your kids and you're raising little kids. By age 45, that moves to 45% difference. So while men are digging in at work, putting in more hours putting their hat in the ring for promotion, getting pay increases, women are stagnant because they're focused on their household work. And that has huge financial repercussions
1: for the whole family. And those are the two sort of fulcrum points you argue in the book where these things can really start to change and where even like I took women's studies courses in college, I'm a feminist, but once you join a partnership and then have your first child, all of a sudden you're acting out these gender roles without even realizing it.
2: Yeah. Cause we're busy because it's hard because mm. jobs and kids and community and parents take up time and we're all tired. Mm. <laughs> and so I think it's really, and you know, being intentional about anything is hard. And so I think that we tend to go into this default mode and you just start behaving in the way that people have role modeled behavior to you in the past.
0: And is it connected at all to the age of the children? Because I found parity extremely difficult when my children were very little. I had three kids in four years, so I was breastfeeding like, I don't know, eight hours a day for three years, you know, and I found it very difficult to achieve any level of parity at that time. Yeah. But as my kids became less literally like needy off of my body, I found now that sometimes when it's a little bit more driving and activities and sports and camps and things that my husband can dial into, it's much easier for us to find a balance. And to some degree, sometimes the balance almost tips a little bit more towards him. Is that something that reflects in uh, your research? You know, I don't have any data on that, but it's an interesting conversation to have. I think that I do have a
2: section on breastfeeding and I do think breastfeeding in particular I mean, you're just talking about dozens of hours of unpaid labor that you're doing every week. And so to have an equitable relationship while breastfeeding a child takes incredible intentionality and work so that basically your male partner or the non breastfeeding parent, if you're in a same sex relationship, is doing so much more (laughs) while you're sitting on the couch for hours on end. It's interesting though, I have heard feedback from people that they're still struggling with parity in the tween and teen years because all of those emotional needs that older kids need and the conversations and the talks, and the tears that a lot of men are having a hard time
1: with that emotional connection. And it's like, go see mom. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, I had like I have an incredible I'm doing this right now with my second kid, the college application process. And I just had a, you know, let's just say an intense conversation with my partner, in which my partner explained to me that he just wasn't going to worry about it, because it was all going to work out fine. I'm like, Right. Do you know why you're getting to say that? And let me open my spreadsheet, right? Like, then they show you the, the files. But that work is invisible. So there's just new breastfeedings. Basically, when they get older, it's new breastfeedings. And I, I also think that there's a
2: we've seen a trend in the data about when dads engage with kids, it's around play. It's about games. It's about laughing and wrestling and, and that sort of thing. And I interviewed Gary Barker, who's an expert in uh, masculinities for the book. And he made the point to say, You know, when dads, even if dads are doing half and half, and that's fantastic, but also be cognizant of what kind of work they're doing. Are dads being emotional? Are dads the one that kids cry to when they need comfort? Are dads being nurturing? That there's stages, right? It's first, it's like you're doing half the physical work. Great. Okay, now let's take on some cognitive labor. Great. Okay, now let's work on being a nurturer. I mean, I think that there's so many points along the ladder that, you know, every couple... Not saying you're going to devote your life to this day in and day out, but when the college entrance work comes up and another conversation is on the table,
0: you can think about where you are and what maybe your bottleneck is at that time. Amy has an actual term for that, Amy. What is it? What do you call it? Fun time, Charlie? Well, when my husband was sometimes
1: these male and female coded labors, as you call them in the book, they come from the actual situations that we're in. I was I did stay home with the kids. That was a decision that was right for our family. My husband worked outside the home. He'd come home with his tie on at 7 p.m. and whip the kids that I had just bathed and soothed and night timed back into a frenzy because it was his. Look, you want that. It was his time to bond with them and he gets to bond with them how he wants. But right. Sometimes he was due to a situation we were both creating a little bit of a guest star in their lives and things are better now and things are different now, both because of choices we're making and because of. The pandemic changing work and all kinds of reasons, right? It wasn't just his fault. It was time. Yeah, and time. We have, your kids are a bit older, if I recall. And so we're just talking about
2: gender differently now than we were even 10 years ago. I mean, very differently. So I think a lot of it's just giving us vocabulary and stories that we didn't have. 10, 20 years ago, which I think is actually at the core of a lot of couples that I talk to in the Gen X era who have been married now for 10, 20 years that we're just talking about gender differently
1: than when we first got married. That's where we start, right? We're talking to Kate Mangino. When we come back, I want to unpack this whole, but I do way more than my dad did. We're back. We're talking to Kate Mangino. She's the author of the new book, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equity at Home. And I want to drill down on this, uh, but I do way more than my dad did, while also saying that this book is not just for a man and a woman, a straight man and a straight woman and two-parent home. This, you really take great care in this book to make sure that this book has something to offer literally everyone. Thank you. That being said, I did want to drill down on this because my partner does do way more than his dad did. And Margaret, I know you said the same in your house, but like, what's the but to that? Or maybe an and. <laughs>
2: yes, you do so much more than your dad and your grandfather. And that's awesome. And we appreciate that. And there's so much more you can do. <laughs> and this is a milestone, not an endpoint. I think that that is a cultural confusion, to be honest, because compared to Archie Bunker, like you know, Don Draper, it's a more... I'm trying to think Homer Simpson, like who who are the people we grew up with? We're doing
0: you're better than Homer Simpson, which is awesome. But that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) So we have told the story before on the podcast about my father's friend whose wife got so sick that he had to hold her up to change the diapers. I mean, that's two generations ago. (laughs) <laughs> That's two yeah. generations ago. I mean, they were goofing on him. But I mean, there is no world in which this guy would have ever changed a diaper. It just wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't know how. Next step would be bring the baby to the ER to get the diaper changed because there is no way it was happening. And
2: so you don't see that very often anymore. You don't. I don't know too many dads in 2022 who refuse to change a diaper.
0: No, and it wouldn't get a laugh in 2022 either. It would be like, what is wrong with you? You are clearly a monster, right? Yeah. Which is why I think it's great to sort
2: of say, to readjust, recalibrate. Okay, great. This is now what we're doing. The hands-on husband, as I talk about in my book, the helper in the house, the guy who's happy to strap on the baby Bjorn, the guy that's happy to take kids to a soccer game, maybe even be a coach. But he's not the cognitive laborer. He's not the project manager. He's not the one anticipating the needs of the family, tracking what everyone's doing, tracking the college applications. And I just feel like we have to recalibrate and say like, okay, we've moved. This is awesome. We still have more to go. What's the next step?
1: I think everybody can relate to that. Like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm happy to help, but that's... Yeah, thanks. But right, right. Me coming up with something that I can assign out is also work. And I think about like in a work
2: sense, I mean, how many men who work anywhere in an office, a retail, if your boss came to you and said, like, I want you to anticipate the needs of your job and just do it as opposed to me, like following you around and telling you exactly how to do your job, what man would say to his boss? no. I can't anticipate any needs in my profession. You have to tell me exactly what to do. I mean, when you make those connections or comparisons between home and office, you just realize how absurd it is when people say, I don't know what needs to be done. You have to tell me.
0: Again, a conversation we visited <laughs> on this podcast where saying to your spouse, yep. if you behave this way at work, you would be fired. Yes, yes. You know, nagging is a term that I've heard in sitcoms and whatever for my whole life. I've heard it said. Yep. But I was like, oh, the nagging wife. And I truly... Did not even relate to that. I mean, it had no role in my life. And then I got married. And I realized that you focus on kind of making these bigger conversations because otherwise you do end up in a position of like do everything by myself or just constantly ask it to be done and be frustrated when it's not done. That's a trap that I feel like we fall into either like do it all by yourself and be resentful. Or become this kind of shrewish cartoon of yourself, where all you do is scream at everyone in the house, things on the stairs should be brought upstairs. Like It feels like such a trap, I feel like.
2: It is a trap. And I feel like that manager-employee dynamic that so many households fall into, yes, it's a clear delegation of labor, so I understand how it might be easy for some people, but I don't want to be my husband's boss. I don't want to tell him what to do. I don't want to be his mom. I don't want to follow him around and remind him. And he doesn't want me to be his home expert, right? Like it doesn't work for either person. I don't think it's fair for either the manager or the employee if you adapt that sort of behavior pattern to your household.
1: You make an interesting point in the book because, of course, we do talk about this and we say, well, here's the thing. It's working pretty well for everybody else in the house if we just handle everything. But you have research that shows that traditional gender norms are actually harmful for men and boys. And can you tell us a little bit about what the research shows? Absolutely. And this is one of my main arguments is I'm not actually
2: coming out this from a justice perspective. There is a justice perspective, certainly. And you could, we've been doing that for decades and talking about how gender equality is the right thing for women from a justice perspective. But now we have new evidence that it's also the right thing for everyone, that people of all genders benefit from equality, from being able to be your own self, for not having to perform mothering or fathering or masculinity. We have research, the World Report on Fathers has research and great data that was taken internationally about how men's physical, emotional, and sexual health improves when they pitch in at home. That when they are contributing, they are thanked, they are part of the family unit, they have emotional outlets, they have lower stress because they don't feel like they have to bring home a certain amount of money or be a certain kind of security blanket for the rest of the family, that they're in partnership, that men benefit as well. And so I come at this as saying, you know, I'm not asking men to do anything that's bad for them. I'm giving you evidence and stories from other dads who live this way to say, this is awesome. And in fact, the 40 men that I interviewed for the bulk of my book, I call them my EP40, my equal partners 40. When I started identifying them and interviewing them, And to say, you know, how do you do this? Can your stories inform other people? One of my first questions was, do you feel like you've given anything up? And I changed my questions after the first couple interviews because the response was almost angry. Like, no, I don't give anything up. Why would you ask me that? I have gained. My life is so happy. I have this amazing relationship with my spouse. I have an amazing connection with my kids. We actually have a healthy sex life. All of these wonderful things that are happening to me, I'm not giving anything up. And so I think that's
0: one of the most interesting and important
2: messages that came out of the research.
0: And it reminds me of our conversation with Dr. Ibram Kendi Mm -hmm. about anti-racism work, that it can feel like, well, this is a whole other exit I have to go to and find on the highway and then get off of that exit and then pile up my cart with more stuff to think about and try and do. And that that can be the way we think about some work around equity, like, oh, it seems like a whole diversion from my already busy and complicated life. But really, it's a shortcut. It's a place that you go to that takes you to a better place and faster than just trying to ignore it out of your blinders. Absolutely. You, instead of
2: thinking about, oh, I have to make two hours of time for this. Think about how many hours of my week do I spend arguing with my partner over little dumb stuff that we know doesn't matter. There's something bigger at the core. That's what this argument is about. So if I spend a few hours now, I can eliminate 80% of that in the future. Like if you think of
0: it that way, you're right. It is a shortcut to time in the future. And as you said about justice, we always say to people on the podcast, we don't put this in your path because it's better or it will make you a better person. We put this in your path because we think it will actually improve your outcomes and improve the quality of your life. This is an easier path fundamentally.
1: Yes, 100%. How did these EP40, were they all men, your EP40 partners? They were all men.
2: 35 of them were in relationships with a woman and five of them were in a relationship with a man. What else did they have in common? I thought when I set out that I was going to find this silver bullet. I mean, when I started this research years ago, I was like, there has to be some commonality that all of them, they're going to have something in common. And I'm going to write a book that's going to (laughs) say, yeah. yeah. You're all Sagittarius's. (laughs) Yeah. To be an equal part, you need this, right? That's what every publisher wants. I did not find that. I found that they were from very diverse backgrounds. A quarter of them came from single mother households. Um. about 15% of them came from violent and abusive households. Only two of them came from households that role modeled parity. So 38 wow. of them grew up in traditional or violent homes where they were not role modeled parody. They came from rural families. They came from urban families. They came from a range of religions and backgrounds. I have one or two with a PhD and many with a high school diploma who never went on to higher education. And so it was sort of like, what this, this is sad. I don't have any, (laughs) there's nothing that I can write about here. And then I sort of flipped it and I thought, oh, But this is wonderful because all this means is anyone can be an equal partner. It doesn't matter where they came from. It's where they want to go. It was their intentionality that this is the kind of life I want to lead and this is important to me, so I'm going to make it work. So there's really no excuse to say it wasn't how I was raised. I didn't have this role model. I had a violent home. Like basically saying with help and with community
0: and with intention, anyone can live a gender value. I want to talk a little bit more about what that looks like and what those actions look like. We're talking to Kate Mangino. We'll be right back. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking
1: into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage
0: your metabolic health. So another thing that comes up for our listeners, I know, is this feeling of having, for whatever reason, been parented in a way that they don't want to replicate for their children. I see in my own life kind of a slide from like madman Dom Draper into, I don't know, just having a much more equitable partnership with my husband that kind of just evolved slowly over time. Is that different than someone who grew up in a household that had no concept of parity. I think what you're saying before the break is it isn't really. But what do those steps look like? What is leading to successful parity in the relationships that you're studying?
2: It's interesting. One of the men I interviewed, he was one of the two that grew up in the relationship with great gender parity. And he fell into this horrific traditional Marriage when he had his first child and his wife actually said to him, I'm leaving and you can come with me. But I think they were living with his parents at the time. And his parents were helping with the baby, but she's like, I didn't marry your parents. I want to be with you. So I'm leaving and we're going to get our own apartment. And if you want to come, you're welcome to come. And if you don't, that's fine. And so there was this moment in his life and he went with her and they went into therapy together. And so, and it was through therapy that he was like, oh my gosh, I had this role model and I still slipped and I still needed to be reminded. So I think that it's about a repeated message. It's great if you see it from your parents. It's better if you see it from an aunt, and uncle, or a neighbor, or a, someone in your faith community, or friends at school, I just think the more of us talking about this and role modeling it, I mean, you might be role models to your kids' friends, and you might not realize it. You know, you might be a role model to your neighbor, and you might not realize it. But that's why I think talking about it and just being as intentional as possible, you know, is going to get us somewhere in the future.
1: You make that point that the EP40, <coughs> another takeaway for you is that parental influence is important, but maybe not as important as we thought it was that what they were, where they got this idea, if it wasn't in their home, might be from somebody they only ever saw acting out gender parity once or twice.
2: Yeah. As a parent, I was a little bit unnerved by that because you think you have so much control and influence over your kids. My kids are now eight and 11. And I just thought, wow, like maybe their major influence is not isn't going to be me. It's not going to be their dad. It might be someone who they haven't even met yet. Or maybe at least those people will repeat values that we're trying to instill in them now. But I think that was a great message for people who aren't parents or who have kids that are grown up and out of the home or people who are young and haven't had kids yet, is that any of us in the community can help promote gender equality, can support gender equality, that the kids in your life, whether you're a teacher or a camp counselor or a babysitter, That you all have the opportunity to talk to kids and bring up issues around gender, bring up issues around equality, because the more people kids hear it from, the more messaging. I mean, you talked about this with your interview the other day around being an anti-racist. You know, if you don't want your kids to just get the message from that creepy person on the shared video game, but the more people in our community who are talking about gender, who are talking about anti-racism, the better for our kids,
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I can think of an example of having a kid over who said to one of my kids, wow, your dad cooks dinner. Like it was quite shocking to this kid. Interesting. It was just funny and a funny kind of, oh yeah, he loves to cook. And I could see for some kids, and I've had this experience myself, that the complete shift of reality is more impactful than kind of the slow shift of reality, that the cold water of like, sure, oh, a dad could be in charge of the baby. I remember, I mean, I can think of examples from my own. We had a male nurse over. This is how old I am. And I was like, you're a nurse and you're a dude like, <laughs> but I still remember I must have been six years old, you know, or the first time we had a interracial couple over like, wait, a black person, and a white person can be married to each. I feel like those yeah. memories for me are very impactful as they changed my perception of something versus just sort of like, oh, the sort of floating, you know, ambience,
2: that's true. One of my favorite interviews was a story from camp and he was little at the time. I can't remember 10. I'd have to look it up, but small, no t- middle school, because they were talking about girls and they're talking about girls' bodies. So it must've been middle school. And they're making jokes about like what they wanted to do to girls. And, you know, it was a very sexist conversation, but he said at the time when I was growing up, it was a very common conversation for middle school boys To talk this way. And a camp counselor who he very much looked up to, like the cool older guy who was the camp counselor who was in college, overheard this conversation and put a stop to it and was like, that is not cool. We all have friends who are girls. We respect women. We don't talk about women that way. They are not objects for your pleasure. I'm disappointed to hear that from you. And if I ever hear it again, you're going home. And it was that it was another one of those cases of just that moment that was like, oh, that's not cool that's not cool. And I got called out. And he said that was, he remembered it into his 40s when he interviewed with me, you know, that stuck with him.
1: In the book, you talk about, as I was saying before, your language is so careful. It's always inclusive. And it's also the choices you make really made me think of some things differently. For example, instead of saying, you know, fathers do this, mothers do this, you talk about female roles and male roles throughout the book to remind us that it is a choice, right? Every time I say, oh, the baby cries and I pick him up because I know what he wants. That's I'm acting out a female role. And you talk about how they're coded. The work that we do is coded. Can you talk a little bit about this? I thought this was absolutely fascinating about how female and male household tasks are coded. Well, thank you
2: for saying that. I've gotten some negative feedback on that, not because people necessarily disagree, but just it makes the language a little clunky. And we talked about this with my editor over time is sort of, are we going to do this? Are we not going to do this? I just think that I was willing to have some clunky language to push the conversation to a new place. I I thought that the pros outweighed the cons. And so I do talk about a female role and a male role because I wanted to include same-sex couples. And so you can't talk about the man and the woman. And sometimes it's reversed. I mean, I've interviewed couples where it was the man doing a female role and a woman bringing home the bacon and being the breadwinner. So That just sort of opens it up to realizing that they are indeed behavior patterns and they are not linked with our biology and they are choices because gender socialization is a, it's constructed, it's a social construction, right? And I think that's the gender piece in me. My academic background in my work is that these behaviors that we play out in day-to-day life really are often, they come from this fact that we're raised differently. We raise girls to value different things than we raise boys. And I think that when you're having conversations with a partner or your kids, it's important sometimes to take out or not take out, but to rise above individuals. So it's less about me and you and who's doing what wrong and more about, hey, we're all products of this culture and we're all being raised a certain way because of our gender identity. So if we can recognize that, then we're more clearly able to make choices about What's best for us as a person, as opposed to what should I just do because I am a woman or a man?
1: Kate, most importantly, you say that this book is not an instruction manual, it's a menu. Why do you call it a menu? I do call it a menu because
2: I no one is going to follow up on every idea in this book. I mean, that's just absurd. (laughs) Everyone is busy. I'm just impressed if someone reads the whole thing. I think that for the same reason why I am so happy that there are multiple writers on this topic because different voices, different authors have a different perspective. I tried to throw out as many ideas as possible, hoping that if each reader resonates, you know, if like three or four or five ideas resonate with each reader, I would be thrilled. This isn't, you have to do these 50 steps to get to this outcome. And there isn't this outcome. Everyone's goal is different depending on who you are and what your life is like and who your partner is and what's important to you. So it's really more about self-reflection. It's just about reading some information understanding sort of how gender and gender norms connects with these coded tasks that we think are appropriate for men or appropriate for women and then thinking through i mean if you read my book and you think i'm doing female coded tasks and i'm a woman and i'm okay with it and i'm happy and it doesn't bother me yes good on you that's fantastic i wouldn't encourage anyone to change a lifestyle where you are happy But at least now you're aware of what's coded female, what's coded male. So when your cousin comes to you with a question or your kids have a question or your grandkids, you have the words to have conversations and support different kinds of partnerships that look different than our own. I've had a lot of grandmothers as early readers and, (laughs) you know, they said, I'm never going to change. I've been married to this guy for 40 years. And I said, that's great. You have a good thing going. I'm not asking you to change. But new couples are different than they were when you got married. They're having different kinds of conversations. They're facing different kinds of challenges. This gives you the vocabulary so you can support that child or that grandchild or that niece or that nephew. And that's also another hope of mine, that it doesn't necessarily have to be about your own relationship. It's about what contribution you can make to the community.
0: I'm really glad we got to this point before (laughs) finishing because it really is, it's not a new job. It's just a perspective that helps you understand your life. And, you know, I think sometimes some, as I said, this work feels to people like picking something heavy up and it's not, it's a perspective. Yeah. Thank you for saying that.
1: We've been talking to Kate Mangino. Her new book is Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equity at Home. We'll put the link to buy the book in the show notes. Kate, tell us where else people can find you and your work. I have a website, just my name, katemangino.com, and I'm active on Twitter at
0: Mangino Kate. Thanks so much for talking to us today. This was a great conversation.
2: Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Kate.